I'm going to ask that you turn in your Bibles uh, to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 8 through 15 as we consider what does it mean to live in Christ. If kind of interested in a poll here how many of you were alive living in north carolina in 1961 there is okay keep your hands up because i'm going to add to it now how many of you have parents that were alive in north carolina in 1961 raise your hands also Okay, keep your hands raised. All right, now how many of you have either lived in 1961 or had parents live in 1961 on the entire eastern coast? Okay, a good portion of us. Now, all of you who had your hands raised, you can put them down. I came across an an article, an information uh, uh, back in September that just unloaded to me new grace. And for all of you who had your hands raised, it applies to you. I'm about to share something with you that will cause you to thank God once again. Now, I could say to you that apart from God, you would not exist. And you would say, amen. You'd get that. Yes, God is creator, sustains me. But sometimes it's helpful for us to feel that in a little different way. So here's the report I came across uh, back in September. It was in the USA Today. Here's the, the title. Report. Nuke that fell on North Carolina in 1961 almost exploded. That got my attention. One of the hydrogen bombs that a doomed B-52 actually dropped, accidentally dropped on North Carolina... In 1961, came perilously close to exploding, according to a recent declassified report. The four megaton Mark 39 bombs, each packing 260 times the explosive power of the weapon that decimated Hiroshima, broke loose over Goldsboro, North Carolina. My mom grew up near Selma. My dad was in Zeblin in 1961. So the bomber went into a tailspin and crashed. All four safety mechanisms designed to prevent accidental detonation worked properly on one bomb. (laughs) One bomb. (laughs) That's bring a lot of comfort there. Which landed in a meadow. But on the other bomb, three of the mechanisms failed. And only a low-voltage switch kept it from exploding upon impact in a field in Faro, North Carolina, said the 1969 report. <laughs> How about that? All of you had your hands raised. The only reason you could raise your hand was a low-voltage switch. <laughs> That's it. I am here because of one low-voltage switch. And outside of that, all of us would no longer be here. 
all of North Carolina and all the entire eastern seaboard would have been much worse than the Hiroshima bomb. And we would not be in existence. There would be no green pines. That was in 1961. This church did not start in 1970. And all the ones who started were here in 1961. Every once in a while, you come across things like that. That lets you know there's a whole another measure of grace (laughs) and that wasn't declassified until recently let me tell you when we die and when we get to heaven there's gonna be another declassification that takes place and this is going to be one of thousands of things that will be revealed to us how god has saved you time and time and time again and now you're sitting here listening to a message about christ and The point of this is to help the audience understand how precious Christ is. You have no way of knowing what you already have. And heaven is going to reveal to us what you already have. Much more than declassified reports in North Carolina. And so it's with that thought that what you have in Jesus Christ is much more precious than you could ever imagine. That Paul writes to the book of Colossians, and he's especially focusing in on that, in chapter 2, verse 8 through 15. He has already lifted up Christ. We've seen that during the Christmas season as we focused in on chapter 1, especially 15 through 20, who Christ is, that he is God in flesh, the invisible made visible, the creator of all, the end of all, the, the for which all things are made is in Christ. And, and that's been bringing to us and brought to us. And so as we read in chapter 2, we, we've learned what Christ has done and how it just produces thanksgiving in us, an overabounding thanksgiving. And so in chapter 2, verse 8, he focuses a little bit more on that because evidently there's some kind of teaching going on. We don't know exactly what it is in that area where they were being tempted to put their focus outside of Christ unto something else and when you start putting your focus on christ you're you're dealing with a downgrade when you're focusing on something other than christ you have just downgraded your life paul is saying this is how you've downgraded yourself and this is a problem go back to christ consider what you have so whatever you're dealing with whatever you're thinking about right now my plea and the plea of colossians chapter 2 verse 8 through 15 is Consider Christ. You've not lost if you have Christ. So, with that in mind, I'm going to ask that we stand as we read together. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, According to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule. And in him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. 
having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You may be seated. In verses 8 through 15, Paul is dealing specifically with salvation. Next week, Lord willing, verses 16 through 19, he's going to talk about what it means to be holy with Christ. And so let's focus a little bit more on salvation, what we have in Christ. Verse 8, he has this word of warning. He says, watch it. Make sure that no one is taking you captive. Literally, the idea of kidnapping you, carrying you off as booty. Make sure that doesn't happen. By, and he mentions a couple of things, philosophy and empty deceit. Now, he's not talking about philosophy in general. He's talking about a specific philosophy that's occurring there in the Colossae area. Now, if you look at philosophy in general, one of the things you're going to find is that basically is a study of one man making suggestions that life is lived this certain way. He puts a big circle around it and says, live here. And then, as you study philosophy, you're going to find another man that comes after that man and says, no, that's wrong. This is how you live. Live in this circle. And then, it's going to be another man that says, oh, no, both of those are wrong. And, and here it is. Live this way. Philosophy, when it's all said and done, is the study of man's views of correcting one another after another. I remember my granddad telling me as he was studying this, I was just a young boy. He says, I found this out about philosophy. It's just one contradiction after another. And as I studied it, sure enough, he was right. And that was kind of Paul's view here is this is just man's perspective, contradiction one another. And so though it may sound logical, sound reasonable, sound educated, he says, if you go down this road, you are going to endure a downgrade. You're leaving Christ. So don't let this capture your thinking let it be something that uh robs you of christ and he says according to uh human tradition he says this is empty deceit but it's, it's based in two sources one human tradition and then number two according to the elementary spirits of the world now human traditions is man's logic it's man's reasoning and explanation in fact, Jesus endured this a little bit in Mark chapter 7, uh, verse 5 and 9, when he was approaching the people and telling them, this is how you live life. And, and the traditions uh, leaders were saying, you know, you are forsaking the law. And, and Jesus says, no, I'm really just forsaking your traditions. And in fact, he said it this way. He says, you're neglecting the commandment of God. You hold to the tradition of men. You nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Now, let me explain what this means. When... We add to the word of God logic. We have to be careful because we are adding now a tradition of man. I have found this to be most often in the issue or in the question of how do God's people separate themselves from the world. We often tend to add logic to that if God says this, then logically that means these, these things, these things, and these things. And so let's make a law to make sure that if we want to really be godly, then we refrain from these things. But it's not clearly in the Word. 
And with it, it starts to dilute the gospel itself, which is what the Jews were doing in Jesus' day. We have to be thoughtful. We are often consumed by fear. For those who are God's people, one of the worst things to be called a God's person is worldly or uh, liberal. And we will go the opposite extreme so that we can avoid things like that. And so we'll apply, okay, yeah, let me add the logic to the word of God. Paul is saying we've got to be careful of that. It's Christ. Christ is what we exalt, not logic, just Christ. And so, according to the elementary spirits of the world, as people have studied this, many people think that these, he, Paul is referring to actual the spiritual world being basic to the physical world. And so this is perhaps a reference to evil spiritual powers that is the source of anything that takes attention away from Christ. Now, none of us want to call us demon-possessed teachings. But what Paul is saying is it is coming of Satan. It is coming from the enemy because it's taking it away from Christ. Now, as we keep on reading, we go in verse 9. Why is it important? Why is it we have to be careful that we are enduring distractions away from Christ? Because of verse 9. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, Christ is everything. All that God is, that makes God God, is in Christ. Dwelling bodily. And then he says, you have been filled in him. Verse 9 is one of the most concise, focused scriptures, scriptures that speak about who Christ is. He is God in flesh. So, verse 10, you have been filled in him. You have been cl- complete. You remember that, that some of you watched that movie, Jerry Maguire? One of the lines that have endured is this romantic phrase of, I can't remember if the woman or the man said to the guy, I think, you complete me. I think it was God said to the girl, you complete me. Sounds sweet. Sounds romantic. Ah, oh, you complete me. Problem is, it's totally wrong. <laughs> totally wrong. No human being has the capacity to complete you. And if you tell them, you complete me, you are putting on them the expectations that only God can fulfill, and you've just cursed that person. My happiness is dependent on you. My joy, my hope is dependent on you. Sounds great. It's just totally wrong. Don't say that. Don't do that. Works in the movies. Doesn't work in real life. Say what Paul says. Say to Christ, you complete me. And that's enough. And that's what he's saying. You have been filled in him who is the head of rule, of all rule and authority. I just challenge you, even this morning, to say to Christ, Christ, you complete me. Now, some of you, when you say that, you feel that, you know, that's not really true. Because it's not Christ that completes me. I have to have Christ and a fulfilling job. I have to have Christ and a good marriage. I have to have Christ and kids that, well, at least respect me to some degree. You know, I have to have Christ and a clean house. I have to have Christ and a working car. I have to have Christ and a, a reasonable amount of a nest egg to look toward. 
I have to have Christ and some degree of freedom. Think about this. The sin that is in your life that you constantly are besetting you, messing you up, you, you, it's a constant thing. I challenge you. At the heart of that sin, there is a statement that you are saying to yourself and you don't even know it. Christ is not completing me. I have to have Christ and this sin. I have to have this sense of, of, of gossip to make me feel important because then I feel complete. Or I have to have some degree of worry in my life. I can't just have Christ complete. I have to have worry in my life to make me feel like I have some sense of control. I have to have, well, I can't have Christ. I've got to have some comfort. I have to have some laziness to allow me to be comfortable because then only in this downtime can I be complete. I have to be reading these books. I have to be looking at these images on the computer, though I know it's wrong, but, but it gives me some measure of excitement or some sense of comfort that I'm not alone. I, have to, I can't just have Christ. I have to have that too. At the heart... Of our sin is going to be a statement that I have to have Christ and something else to be complete. I have to be accepted by the right people for me to be complete. Do you believe this or not? It sounds great, but when you start applying it to your life, it's much harder than you might think. Because it's going to demand of you to sacrifice your idols for Christ. To fill you. You have been filled in him. But look. Look at the qualifications. Verse 10. Why should I do that? Well, Because he's the head of all rule and authority. <laughs> You're not going to get a downgrade. When you've got the ruler of all. To fill you. I mean think about it. It would be one thing. To have your husband or your wife. To say you know what? I'm going to meet all your needs. That is going to be only as good. As they have capacity to do. Or what if the president of the United States says, you know, whatever you need. I was reading a book where uh, someone said that to a, a veteran. So, yeah, a president said that. And was like, whatever you need, call me. I thought, wow, what, what, that'd be so encouraging. I mean, he's got a lot of resources. But can a president bring peace to your heart? Can a, a president give you purpose of life? But what if you have God saying that to you? I can complete you. I can do this in your life. That is an amazing promise that we have in Christ. And so we keep on reading here. Verse 11. What does we, what, what is it that's complete? He says, you've been filled in him. But verse 11, with Christ, he talks about circumcision. He talks about baptism, which are two metaphors of salvation. What do we have? With Christ, we have complete salvation. We have complete salvation. In verse 11, he says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, this is an Old Testament uh, rite, uh, ritual that would be done. And it signified that this child, it was done as the baby, just uh, as a newborn baby, uh, just a few days old, would come in and they would circumcise this child as a, as a symbol of a way to say they are a child of the covenant, child of the Old Testament covenant. Uh, in fact, you see this in Genesis chapter 17, verse 10 through 14, where it's instituted. 
Uh, we see this again in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3. We see this as Moses' life. In fact, he was going to get killed because he had not had his son circumcised. So God saw it as important. But why did he see it as important? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Scripture says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. In the Old Testament, God was saying it's a symbol that points to your heart. I want your heart to be in love with me. And so, this dealt with a pretty vital organ for a guy. It's what defines a man. It's also, uh, for the man, that which produces life. And so that was the very organ that was operated on. To say, where life comes from, what defines you, should be open and clean to God and to love God with all your heart. That was the very visual, very real way for them to learn this lesson. So the New Testament, baptism comes on. And so he says, you know, what this symbol was, uh, verse 11, this circumcision points to Christ. The circumcision of Christ who has opened up our heart to God. And so now it has a new picture. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So just as the circumcision pictured salvation, baptism now pictures salvation. And so as you've seen us perhaps do this here, we immerse the body into the water, bring it up. It's a picture of death and resurrection. When we're saved by the grace of God, we die. We die. If we are saved by works, we don't die. If we're saved by our good works, then we can always negotiate with God whether we should do something or not. But when you're saved by nothing but God's grace, you lose the negotiating table. We are dead. But there are some deaths that have benefits. I, uh, I came across this story uh, in October uh, from the NPR story. Donald Eugene Miller remained dead this week. Even though he was feeling well enough to stand up in the Hancock County, Ohio probate court and ask Judge Allen Davis to recognize what sounds pretty obvious. He's alive. Mr. Miller, who's 61, disappeared from his home in Arcadia, Ohio in 1986. Authorities research, are searched. They sent out alerts. They tried to track him down with particular urgency because he report, reportedly owed $26,000 in child support for his two children with his ex-wife, Rachel Miller. But they never found a clue as to where he could be. Donald Miller was not a master of stealth and disguise. He was just a heavy drinker who couldn't hold a job. So after eight years without a trace, officials began to assume he must have staggered off and quietly died somewhere. He was declared dead in 1994. And the children he abandoned received death benefits from Social Security. But in 2005, he showed up in a nearbound town called Fustoria. His parents had to break the news to him that he had been declared dead. Try to imagine that conversation. Feel like a snack, son? Or are you too dead? <laughs> he told the court this week, he told the court this week that he hadn't disappeared. But after losing his job and facing child support bills, he just didn't know what else to do. It kind of went further than I expected to, Miller explained, and asked the judge to declare him undead. 
We've got the obvious here. A man sitting in the courtroom. He appears to be in good health, Judge Davis said. But added, the law is clear. Declarations of death can only be rescinded within three years. I don't know where that leaves you. But you're still deceased as far as the law is concerned, said Davis. This may sound like a scene of the absurd from a novel. A man who's demonstrably not dead has to go to court to try to prove he's alive. But he can't convince the judge, he's standing right in front of him, that he's alive because the court ruled he was dead 19 years ago, although he isn't. But here's something to consider. If Ohio didn't have a three-year limitation on rescinding declarations of death, Donald Miller's family would be required to repay all the Social Security benefits the children received after he abandoned them. How unjust or absurd would that seem? In the end, Davis said the law was clear. Judges may have life and death powers, but they cannot restore life. (laughs) Wow. Sometimes death has benefits. (laughs) I just couldn't help but escape some of the obvious that's right here in this message of what Christ presents to us. He says, when I died... By faith, you died. You identify with my death. But I assure you, that's a good thing. Because your your death has nothing but debt. But when you die, the debt is satisfied. And more importantly, not only do you die, you have life. You are raised with Christ. You see that as we read in the scripture, verse uh, verse 12, it talks about how there is this, this rising up. You raised with him from the dead. So what does that look like? Well, it is the surrender of your will because of the grace of God is too great. You surrender your will. We uh, This past season, we're having, we have an Advent log uh, that we, we light a candle every day of December pointing up to Christmas. And, and so it becomes a, a time where we tell a story about Christ pointing up to, to him. And, and so one of the things that happens is that uh, the boys want to uh, snuff out the candles. Uh, but we realize that desire would be there. And so we have taken caution uh, and make sure that the log is up on the mantle well beyond their reach. So when that happens, I allow them to snuff out a few candles, and I do it a couple, uh, one main way is by holding them up on my knee, and I let them hold the little snuffer, uh, but all the while my hand is on their hand, because if that's not happening, they're just, (laughs) you know, bad things are going to happen, houses are going to burn down, it's just going to be, you know, uh, we're well aware of that, but when we first started doing it, uh, the boys would, would try to take the hand and would try to control where it was going. And so there had to be a recognition. And I said, wait a second, let me direct you. And so their main job was to let their hand be held by my hand to yield their muscles, to yield their will to my will and my strength. And then together we would snuff out the candles. Listen, that is what Christ is doing with us through the Holy Spirit, that there is a recognition on our part that our will is not bringing life. Our will brings more sin and brings more death. And so there is a moment every day in our life when we recognize the presence of God's Spirit with us that we say, God, I do not want to do this on my own. 
Will you carry me? Will you operate through me? Will you give me the strength and let me listen? Let me be sensitive to your directing muscles, your directing strength, your prompting, so that I will do what you want to do and I will not be resistant. And so God works through you that way. Your job is to cooperate and to listen and to abide in Christ. His job is to direct and bear the fruit. You are risen. God has raised you with Him. There is life. I am crucified with Christ that nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives through me. And I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. This is how we operate. That is what it means to be a follower of Christ. From the point that we have on till we die, we live by Christ's direction, through His Holy Spirit. Other definitions of walking down the aisle and making some confession at some point in your life, being baptized, having your name on the church roll, and that's it? That's heresy. That's not right. It is an ongoing working of Christ in our life. You remember what we learned last week? Just as you received Christ. So walk ye in him. Yes, there is a receiving time in our life, but it is beginning an ongoing walk with him. Now, verse 13, what else do we have with Christ? With Christ, we have complete salvation. But with Christ, we also have complete forgiveness. Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses. You know what dead means? That means that you are uh, devoid of sense, that you are unable to respond to any kind of stimuli. Spiritual stimuli, you just sit there. You can't see light. You can't smell. You can't breathe the air. You are unresponsive. You're dead in your trespasses. And you are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, you live by your own will, your own desires. But notice what verse 13, God made alive together with him. What job did you do? <laughs> you listened to God. God made you alive with him. Now he, now you're able to respond to God. What is life? Life is responding to God. That's eternal life. Responding to the eternal life. Jesus said, what is eternal life? That you know God. All right? So that is what it means. And so when I listen to the promptings and listen to the directing of the word of God, God speaking through him, uh, through God's word, I am living. I'm living. To spend my days playing video games and not seeking God is a bad imitation of life. It's death. To spend my days in employee manuals and not seeking God is a very dull imitation of life. Do you understand that the most important Thing that can happen in your day is to seek God and to hear from Him. To spend your days just dealing with family matters and not seeking God in it, to, to deal with government matters and not seeking God in it, is false imitations, poor imitations of what we have in Christ. Don't live just in the shadows. Live in the reality of who Jesus is. And so, it keeps on going here. God made life together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, notice a key word in there. How many of our trespasses has God forgiven? 
What does verse 13 say? Has forgiven us all our sins. All our sins. When I hear the word all, that is past, that is present, and that is also future. When God saw my life, he saw my life in its entirety, and he died for my life in its entirety. All of my sins are taken care of. He's forgiven all of them. Have you ever had something forgiven? A debt forgiven? Notice how verse 14 says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. It is miserable to be in debt, and the sad reality is that most of us are getting used to it. (laughs) But have you ever had debt forgiven? There was a time in our life we had several thousand dollars uh, uh, that was just done for housework. And, and uh, we had a loved one that said, I will uh, loan this to you. And we were paying him. But after a while, he just came up to us and said, your debt is forgiven. You don't owe money. That was such a sense of elation. But that, <laughs> that sense of elation, that joy, is only as strong as the sense of dread of debt. <laughs> if you don't mind debt, then it's just mild enjoyment when it's been forgiven. We've been forgiven all our trespasses by counseling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. A number of years ago, we had the note burning uh, of the facility. We're paying several thousand dollars a month. So about uh, eight years ago, we burned a note. That was good. You know what was even better after burning the note? Is when the income came in, we got no bill where we, where we, where we had to pay several thousand dollars for our building. <laughs> what wonderful notes. Do you know that when Jesus died on the cross, there was a note burning that took place? All the shame. Think about the sins of this year. The shame of it. You personally felt multiplied times all your previous history, times all the future sins of your life, all that shame multiplied by everyone in this room, multiplied times everyone in this world who have trusted in Christ, multiply that times everyone in history who have trusted in Christ, and all of that sin burnt on the cross. What a note burning. Nailed to the cross. Isaiah 1, 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Whoa. That's good. That's good. Verse 15. With Christ we have complete forgiveness. With Christ we have complete salvation. But as we see in verse 15, there's something else. There is a victory like we've not yet experienced. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. The rulers and authorities is referring to spiritual rulers and authorities. He's talking about the enemy of God. He's talking about Satan and he's talking about demons that's involved here. And so when he died, and it's an it's a ironic thing, when Jesus was stripped on the cross, you know, we don't get that because no one wants to put that up on a statue or a picture, but Jesus was stripped. He was shamed on the cross, and not only was, was there the whipping and the, the persecution that took place, but he was there, and he was on the cross in shame with not a stitch of clothing on him. 
But all the while where he was being humiliated and stripped and shamed before this world, the ironic thing that was happening is that as Jesus died, the rulers and spiritual authorities were being stripped. Laid bare. Humiliated. Because Jesus satisfied your sin. And Satan hates you. Satan hates you for being the image of God. Satan hates you for the potential of worshiping him, worshiping God. And he wants you to feel the condemnation of your sin. That was stripped as Jesus was stripped. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the the image of, of the Roman triumphal parade. That often you, you see these in movies where, where the, the Roman general, the one who won the battle, will come into the, to the city and behind the Roman general will be the, the army and the applause and everyone singing the praises of this, this battle, the praises of the general and that's all coming behind and there's laurels and wreaths being thrown and being a part of the celebration and at the end will be the defeated king the defeated warriors and all the spoil that comes with the war coming at the end so everyone is jeering at the enemy to see you have lost when we read this verse 15 jesus is leading the triumph he won the victory And so when death comes our way, we have nothing more to fear, but instead our death is joining the parade, following Christ, giving praise to Him. And so as we read this, you don't need any amulets. You don't need any dream catchers. You don't need good luck charms. You don't need yoga to make you spiritually strong. You need Christ. He's done it. And as I look at this next year, all we need is Christ. He is our victory. He is our forgiveness. He is our salvation. Don't let anyone dilute Christ in your heart and life. And so the question that remains is, will you be filled with Christ? Or will you have to have Christ and whatever it is that besetting sin is? I just challenge you. Let the sufficiency of Christ be right there in the midst of that sin. And understand you have no need to keep on going down that direction. Let's pray.